0: On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. But when he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And in a disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. I had a wedding here at five o'clock yesterday. I'm closing in on having done this a thousand times. I have a little record book that I've kept all these years myself. I have in it every funeral I've done, uh, the date, the name of the person, how old he or she was, and the text from which I spoke that day. And I have every wedding I've ever performed listed in the book. Now, before I marry any couple, I always counsel with them, and one of the questions I ask in the introductory phase is, how many are you expecting at the wedding? And they always glance back and forth at each other, and finally they say, well, we invited 50. We invited 100. We invited 200, 300. But I know how painful that is to make the invitation list. How many? And if only 50, who will they be? If only a hundred, who will they be? And Jesus once told a story about inviting people to a wedding banquet. Let's take a look at this story. Number one: what could possibly go wrong? Here Luke tells you that Jesus was invited to the home of a Pharisee on the Sabbath to eat a meal. There are at least four reasons why this is not going to go well. Not going to go well. And just to be sure, you've sensed the apprehension here. Luke says, and they were watching him closely. And then the verse we read after that said, and he was also watching them closely. They were watching him and he was watching them. Do you sense that God watches over you? In this day when there are millions of cameras, every telephone is a camera, do you understand how many people are watching and maybe even taking a picture of you? Gail and I have enjoyed doing the trains of Europe. They're wonderful. It's fun. You can go to a lot of different places very quickly. One of our vacations, we went to the Netherlands. Uh, Neither of us really knew much about the Netherlands. We'd been to Amsterdam on a couple of occasions, but had not really been into the innermost parts, and so we mapped out almost three weeks in the Netherlands. Three nights we spent in Delft. Some of you are familiar with the beautiful pottery that's made at Delft. Uh, Blue, it's been made for hundreds of years. You may recall that the 1600s were the golden age of the Netherlands. There's a reason why we still have the Dutch West Indies and the Dutch East Indies. Because these folk were outstanding sailors, they were also outstanding merchant traders, and their ships went literally around the world. Uh, Christopher Columbus had solidified this knowledge that indeed the earth is round, 1492, and people had been sailing. It had been 130, 40 years after that, and the Dutch were making a lot of money. 1627, young baby born there at Delft, named by his parents Willem van Eist. Willem van Eyst, as a little boy, started drawing and painting and drawing and painting. Someone said to him, you need to go to Paris, and they will teach you how to paint, At 19, he made his way to Paris, spent six years there, and he learned a lot. From there, he went to Florence, where there was a prominent family that we Americans call the Medicis. In Italy, they call them Medici. The Medicis had the money and the power, and they hired Willem van Elst to paint. His specialty, still life's. Still lifes. He painted for the Medicis for five years and then had an even better, more lucrative offer to come back to his own country. And at 30, he went to Amsterdam and spent the next 16 years, he died at 46, painting still lifes. You've seen some of these in books of beautiful paintings. These still lifes are banquet scenes, not people. The table. The table. When you look at these paintings, you see pheasants, dead, ready to be prepared. You see roosters and hens. You see leg of lamb. You see shoulder of pork. You see beef. You see big pomegranates. You see apples. You see oranges. You see all the opulence of these wealthy traders paying Willem von Elst and others lots of money to document for history we had a lot of money and we gave some rip snorting big parties now Gil and I don't spend long looking at those still lives we really prefer to see paintings of people we really prefer to go down the hall where Vincent van Gogh painted a picture of poor potato farmers who were also from the Netherlands. His home also. The significant thing is that God was watching these poor potato farmers and he was also watching the wealth. What are you doing with that which God has entrusted to you? How are you managing what God has entrusted to you? Jesus decided to tell them a story. Now, Dr. Brandon Scott, when he gave our Barton Clinton Gordy lectures here, said, Every time you read a parable of Jesus, he is talking about the kingdom of God. Every time, he said. And he spent 40 years studying the parables of Jesus. Dr. Fred Craddock, a former presenter in this series, wrote in his commentary on Luke, No, for sure, this parable is about the kingdom of God. But we are in kingdom tide. This is the season we call kingdom tide. We've been through all the major seasons of celebrating the life of our Lord. We anticipated His coming in Advent. We celebrated His arrival at Christmas. We celebrated God's willingness to reveal this child Jesus to us Gentiles in the form of the Magi. We came to the 40 days of Lent. We came to Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, the week of agonizing suffering, the crucifixion of our Lord on Friday, His death late that afternoon, Easter We celebrated Easter for seven weeks. We then celebrated the arrival of the Holy Spirit, having existed forever, of course, but coming in a fresh, new, wonderful way. And then we're at Kingdom Tide. If you do not know yourself to be a child of the Kingdom of God, why not? If you do not know the joy of being a part of, of the kingdom of God. Why not? But also, are you behaving, conducting your life as a child of God, as one who prays every week, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus says one important thing to learn about being in the kingdom is... If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. I was driving to work the other morning, coming down Riverside, and I saw the big flag in the park flying at half-mast because Neil Armstrong was being buried that day. Many of us remember that frantic race to get to the moon. I was in high school when the Russian Sputnik went into space. 1958, how frightened we all were. Just four years later, we would have the Cuban Missile Crisis, where if Gorbachev had not told his ships to turn around, there would have been World War III. We had drawn the line out there in the Atlantic and we were prepared to go to war, if that's what it took, to have those missiles taken out of Cuba. That's how dangerous a time it was, how anxious Americans were about that little Sputnik going round and round the earth. If the Russians could do that, and we could not in 1958, if they could do that, they could put a camera on it, they could put a weapon on the next one. It was frightening. And then to elect John Kennedy and have him say, January 1961, within 10 years, we will catch up and exceed what the Russians have done. we will put men on the surface of the moon and bring them back safely. Did you read the book, The Right Stuff, or see the movie, The Right Stuff? You see, I was in high school, then in college as all this unfolded, then in graduate school, and then I was sent to Houston. Not only that, my sister, who graduated from SMU with her bachelor's degree, the same afternoon in the same ceremony I got my Master of Theology, she went to teach school at the Man Space Center. She met and in five years married a young Texas Aggie who was an engineer for NASA and so the things he could tell us about what they were doing, he did tell us. We have all these little eight-millimeter movies of our three little ones eventually in time sitting on the curb in Houston waving an American flag as one astronaut after the other went up and down the street in parades. It was an exciting time. And then Christmas Eve 1968, ah, we didn't land that time, we just went round the moon and back again. And then in July, July 20, 1969. It was a Sunday. I remember these things because I was supposed to preach that Sunday night at the First Methodist Church in Houston. I preached every Sunday night at the First Methodist Church in Houston. And now we were being told a spacecraft should land just about the time we were in church. And Dr. Allen and I decided we're not going to have anybody at church when they're landing on the moon. So we need to move up our service. And we did move it up by a couple of hours so that people who wanted to come to church could get to church and rush home back to the television sets and the radios to hear what was going on. Those first seven, and those who followed them, were indeed made of the right stuff. If you've read, if you've seen the movie, you know how cool and collected those guys were under pressure. Amazing! In the movie, you saw John Glenn, the Marine, first American actually to go into orbit. Alan Shepard, first to be lifted off in one of the rockets in a splashdown in the Atlantic Ocean, but he never went into orbit around the Earth. It was John Glenn who made the first three trips. Wow, we could hardly imagine. 25,000 miles around the Earth, and he was circling it every 90 minutes. Seventeen, eighteen thousand 18,000 miles an hour. And now it was time for him to re-enter. We thought we knew what was going to happen. Not for sure. Have you seen those tiny little spacecraft? I mean, those guys were wedged in there. They could hardly even move. It was so tiny, so confining. And it showed John Glenn. As this spacecraft re-entered, fire a ball of fire up around the windows all he could see was fire and he's sitting in there pushing the buttons exactly as he had been taught to do they were amazing amazing finally neil armstrong took command of that spacecraft as it lowered to the moon and he could see out the windows that they were coming down on a patch of rocks this fragile little thing they were riding in had to sit firmly on four prongs. If not, it couldn't take off again to redock with the spacecraft that would bring them safely home again. And he took manually control and simply said, uh, We're going to be busy the next minute or so. And then those words Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has led it. First man on the moon, followed by Buzz Aldrin. He died, 82 years old. Did you follow what he did after he walked on the moon? He'd grown up on a farm in Ohio. He went to be a professor, University of Cincinnati. He said, I was a nerdy, geeky engineer. He taught for 10 years, and then he moved back to the farm. When he was 50 years old, he decided to be a farmer again. Had a few cows and planted a lot of acres of corn and lived till he was 82. Didn't give autographs because he didn't want them on eBay with somebody making a lot of money out of his autograph. The Wall Street Journal had a wonderful editorial about him this week, and this is the way it ended. Three things you could say about Neil Armstrong. Amazing excellence, fortitude, and humility. That's the word, humility. Not thinking less of yourself, thinking of yourself less. And then it said they aren't making Neil Armstrong's anymore. And if that be true, it's a shame, because God said all of us should be like Neil Armstrong. Number three, this third important part of the story is about the people we invite to the party. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your family, or your rich neighbors who will invite you to their big party. Then you've been repaid. That's not the way to do it. Instead, invite the lame the poor, the crippled. This is about the kingdom of God. This is the way kingdom people are supposed to live their lives. Dr. Jeff Jopinga is dean of the McCormick Seminary in Chicago, and he has written recently that he was at one of those big, big gatherings where you don't know anybody. You're sort of fumbling around through the crowd trying to read a name tag or two. He said, I saw a woman I'd never seen in my life. She had never seen me either. I was trying to get a look at the name tag, and once I saw it, I called her by name and told her who I was. So what do you say to somebody you've never met before? I said, what do you do? And she said, I bring hope to people who are hurting. I said, oh, where do you do that? And she told me she was a clerk, At a large supermarket, she checked people's groceries all day. But the way she saw her job was I give hope to people who are hurting. She said, as one basket after the other approaches, I look at the person pushing the basket. And when I see a face that looks sad, worn, hopeless, I look really hard to find something extra kind I can say to that person. Wow, he said, you got a great job. You got a great job. To your kingdom party, those who sit at table with you, the lame, the blind, the crippled, these are the people whom God wants to be invited to the party. Number four, don't seek people who can repay you, but those who cannot repay. If you do for those who can never, ever repay, you will receive your reward at the resurrection of the righteous. And righteous simply means right standing, those who stand right And we stand right with God, as we know now, when we trust that God loves us. As Lita's saying, his eye is on the sparrow. Surely he cares for you and me too. And faith is trusting that that is so, that he does, in fact, care for us. And we accept his gift of his love and grace. Accept the gift and we stand right with him. And if we're doing agape, if we're putting ourselves out for the well-being of those who cannot repay, then we stand right with them, too. Another former Barton, Clinton and Gordy presenter was Dr. Thomas Long. We invited Dr. Long when I've only been here five six years. He was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary at the time. He is a Presbyterian. But we Methodists lured him away to our Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, offered him a prestigious chair in homiletics, teaching others how to preach, and he's been there ever since. Recently, he wrote for Christian Century Magazine that he and his wife have a little rural home in Maryland. Uh, I've always wondered what that would be like. You work nine months and have three off. That sounds like a good deal to me. You have three months off every year. This professor... He has three months off, so they go to this little rural area of Maryland and just relax and enjoy. He said there is not a Presbyterian church within miles. So we go to a little Methodist church nearby. They normally have about 20 people, he said. We, two Presbyterians, 20 Methodists. He said the other day we got to worship Opened the hymn book to the first hymn, it was Onward Christian Soldiers. I said, we Presbyterians haven't sung Onward Christian Soldiers in years. Our last three hymn books didn't have Onward Christian Soldiers. This militaristic thing, you know, we don't sing that song. Well, in our last Methodist hymn book, the committee decided we wouldn't have it either. And there was such a hue and outcry from the populace that we do have it. Because you see, you need to remember that Onward Christian Soldiers was not written by Richard Wagner or somebody. It, it, no, it was written by an Anglican minister to get little children from their classroom to chapel. Little children, 10, 11, 12 years old, to sing this hymn, On the Way to Chapel. And the group that adopted it was the Salvation Army who call themselves an army, but they are an army ministering to the poor, the homeless, the downtrodden, the unfortunate. They carry no weapons, they carry horns, they play in a band, they take hymn books, they fix meals, they make beds. He said, We stood to sing, and I heard it like a mighty army moves the church of God. I looked around me old people I could hear a couple of hearing aids going off sometimes we have a pianist if her glaucoma is not acting up if it is we sing a cappella. we are not divided all one body we we sang and I felt a tear coming to my eye Dr. Long said I felt it said, I reflected, next year would be the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, the battle that turned that war, the great civil war of our country. Never again would the southern armies move as far north or be as qualified and trained and ready for battle as they were at Gettysburg. Fifty years after the veterans who had survived met again on that battlefield. That was chronicled in the PBS series on the Civil War. These 70- and 80-year-old men met again at Gettysburg. Those from the south gathered down at the bottom of the hill, and those at the north were at the top of the ridge, and the charge began. These old men, almost stumbling through the field, some of them still limping from that battle 50 years before. And as they got almost to the wall, those from the north stepped out from behind the wall and threw open their arms, and they all hugged. They all hugged each other. We are not divided. We are the church of God. If we invite to the party the crippled the blind, the lame, any and all who cannot repay, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous.